Uh, a few years ago, I got to take a class from Dr. Don Carson, a pretty well-known Christian scholar who, when I pressed him for an answer, admitted to our class that he reads 300 books every year. <laughs> Can you imagine? He's a man of massive intellect. He's a really gifted speaker, and he has a deep love for all kinds of people, no matter what they believe. And that's why he's gotten to present and to speak to different audiences around the planet for the past few decades. He's had grad school classes worth of pastors, like the one that I was in, and he's presented to university audiences that are filled with some convinced Christians and a whole bunch of skeptics and a lot of people in between. And from his experience, Dr. Carson shared with our class what he perceived to be the Christian teaching that was the hardest for young Americans to believe. In his experience, the hardest Christian teaching wasn't the reliability of the Bible, that it was inspired by God or it's the word of God. And it wasn't the resurrection of Jesus, that a guy actually died on a cross and came back from the grave living and breathing. Now, according to Dr. Carson, the hardest thing for young people in America to believe was that they were bad. The bad stuff, sinful stuff, and evil stuff is not just something out there in the world, but right here within them. That words like deceitful and corrupt and evil, according to the Bible, are not just reserved for Hitler and the Holocaust, but for every human heart. That the primarily, primary problem that we face on our planet is not the way that children are nurtured, but what they are by nature. It's an old teaching that some Christians call original sin, that we're born bad, born in sin and need to be born again, that was the hardest for young people to believe or to buy. You don't have to shout out your answer, but I, I wonder how you would answer that question too. Are, are people born bad? Is the human heart to be trusted and embraced? Are little kids in spiritual danger? Are they conceived and born with a problem that's so bad it actually makes God angry at them? I wonder what you think. I know this much. Your answer to that question is massively important. Some of the biggest things that we talk about in church, like the Bible and community and salvation and baptism and daily habits, are almost all based on what you think about your own heart. I mean, think about it. If a child is born in sin, they have a desperate and urgent need to be connected to Jesus and his forgiveness. If they're not born in sin, they're spiritually okay until they do something really bad that requires forgiveness. If people are born bad, then the things we hear all the time about being true to ourselves and following our hearts wouldn't make sense. Because why would you follow a heart that's messed up? But if it's true that we're good, then we should follow it and be true to ourselves and live out our truth. And that's actually really good advice. If our hearts are, are born good, then we can trust what we feel and we can go with our guts and we maybe don't need the wisdom of this book. But if our hearts deceive us, then we're desperate for this to know what actually is truth and what path we should take. If people are born so spiritually bad, they need grace and forgiveness. We'll run to Jesus and cling to his cross and we'll spread the message so that everyone can have it. But if we think that we're all right by nature and we don't need saving, then evangelism and salvation become optional and not necessary. 
When it comes to the way we live our daily lives, when it comes to our connection to a church, when it comes to our spiritual habits and the way we raise the next generation, you know, so much comes down to the answer of that two word question. We good. So I wonder what your answer is. If you're kind of skeptical about that whole issue, you definitely wouldn't be the first. Now asking that simple two word question, we good provokes all kinds of debates. I mean, a skeptic, might look at a little child, newly born, and say, sinful? Like, corrupt? Evil? Like, no, that doesn't seem right. That, that can't be right. This child is innocent, and it's precious, and it's, it's, an, it's angelic. But maybe an older parent would, would push back and say, well, just give it a little bit, okay? Give her... <laughs> You ever raised a toddler before? They will sometimes do things like really nasty things that are not at all their nurture. They just seem to come from their nature. They will claw and scratch and bite and gouge their very mothers that gave them life. They'll look dad in the eye when they're strapped into that high chair and push the sippy cup off the ledge like 17 times until dad is red-faced and furious. They'll pick up Thomas the tank engine, like bash their little brother in the face. And if there wasn't a consequence, they'd do it multiple times without remorse. They'll go to a store and a little girl, maybe if she doesn't get what she wants and how much of it she wants, when she wants, she'll have a meltdown that makes Chernobyl look like child's play. And she will publicly embarrass the woman who has loved her more than any other human being. And if you believe the human heart is entirely good and innocent and angelic, how, how do you explain that? Okay, maybe, the, the skeptic says. But kids do a lot of good things too, don't they? Like kids and grown-ups, Christians and non-Christians, we give, we share, we, we rally together as communities when disaster strikes. There's so much good in the world. How could you say the human heart is bad? To which another person concedes, well, well, maybe, but how do you actually know what's a good work if you can't see the human heart? If a guy is just really sweet and selfless with his wife because he wants the night to end in a certain way, is he a good man? If a kid in middle school says all the right things to a girl in the hallway because he wants to be noticed, is he a good kid? If a business donates part of its proceeds to a local nonprofit because donating to local nonprofits in the end is pretty good for business, is that a noble act? Jesus once went after people who gave to the poor and were very religious and prayed all the time because even though their outward actions look good, their hearts were totally selfish and self-seeking. So how do we even know what what a good thing is unless we can see the motives of the heart? Okay, this, the skeptic says, I guess I never thought about that, but come on, isn't is that a pretty toxic idea to believe? Like, you're bad, we're all bad, the children are bad, our hearts are bad, so go do good things. Wouldn't it be much better to embrace what's happened recently in American history, the, the self-esteem movement, that we believe that we're good and we should be true to ourselves and our hearts are solid. And if we just you know, live out that passion that God has put into our hearts, the world will be a better place. To which someone says, have you looked at what the self-esteem movement did to us? 
When you read the comment section on social media, does it look like we've become better, kinder, gentler, more humble people? I recently read a book uh, by an author named Will Storr called Selfie. He's not a Christian, but he analyzed the self-esteem movement and, and this was his conclusion. He said, for decades, we've been telling people they're really, really good. And as a result, they've started to believe that their hearts and their own feelings are sacred. Which means if someone doesn't agree with my heart and what it feels, you must not be sacred. You must be sinful. And if you're sinful, you must be silenced. Which maybe explains why there's so much hate and so little love in our culture, despite 30 years of telling Americans they're so, so good. Okay, the skeptic says, maybe. But isn't this whole thing, like people are bad, pretty convenient for a church to say? Like, you can't trust your heart. You need to come and trust this book the way the pastor teaches it. That's pretty convenient. You're so bad that you need to be saved. And guess who can save you? The church. Oh yeah, and while, while you're here, while you need us to like keep you accountable and protect you from yourself, guess what we're going to do every Sunday? Take your money. As long as we have you chained to these chairs. Like, do you think maybe this teaching is just made up by men to get more money? To which the Christian says, yeah, that's happened. Like, way too much that's happening and God hates it. And, and we hate that it happened. But maybe we're teaching original sin for a different reason. To help you to walk that narrow road that keeps you humble and happy at the same time. So you don't become a super proud person who thinks they're the bad people and I'm one of the great people. And don't be some, become so crushed by your own badness and sinfulness that you never think you could be good with God. What if we're helping you balance those two things and be humble and happy at the same time? We good? There's a whole lot of debate and a whole lot riding on that question. And that's why today I want to introduce three people who want to reason with us a little bit and suggest an answer. I want you to hear the answer to that question from the guy who first got the Ten Commandments, the guy who wrote half the New Testament, and the guy who claimed to be God. Today we're going to read some scriptures from Moses the prophet, from Paul the apostle, and from Jesus the Messiah. Because they all spoke directly an answer to that question. We good? And their, answer, their answers might surprise you in more than one way. So check out the screen. We're going to start with Moses and look at his words in Genesis 5. He said, when God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And he named them mankind when they were created. So back in the beginning, the God who makes no mistakes made people. And notice those words. He made them in the likeness of God. He made the male and the female just like he was as God. And because God is a spirit, you know, he doesn't have a height and a weight and a hair color. They weren't made like him physically, but like him spiritually. They were holy. They were righteous. They were perfect. If Adam and Eve would have looked at our father in heaven and asked the question, we good? He, he would have smiled and said, just like me. 
But just one verse later, Moses hints that something tragic happened. Look at his next words. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. Now, don't be distracted by the long life that God gave to Adam. Uh, Notice those little words, his own. Apparently, when Adam and Eve had their children and baby Seth was born, they looked a lot more like their father on earth than our father in heaven. And if you've read the first five chapters of the Bible, unfortunately, you know what that means. Because in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve decided to do something bad. God said not to eat from the knowledge, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And and when they did, when they doubted and disobeyed, when, when they took the first bite of that fruit, they sinned. And in the process, they became sinners. And they ran from God. They hid from God. They didn't think like God. They didn't love like God. They had lost the likeness of God. Complete holiness and perfection and righteousness slipped through their fingers. And according to Moses, when when Adam and Eve made a baby, when a sinner and a sinner had sex, they were incapable of creating a saint. Their original sin made sin Seth's origin. And ever since, when a father and a mother create a son or a daughter, they pass on the same problem. That by our very nature, we're not holy, we're not perfect, we're not exactly like God, we're not totally good. So if you're taking notes, ask Moses the question, we good? And here's his answer, yes. And then no. Yes, we were good. We we were created so good by a God who is amazingly good. But because of sin, we lost it. And this is why a writer like King David can say in Psalm 51, surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. This is why even the best families in the Old Testament and the New required the the grace of God from the earliest years. Children had to be brought to Jesus to be blessed because without him, they could not be. And this is so important for you to remember because it will warn you not to use the F word when you come into my office. Uh, As a pastor, I get to hear a lot of struggles that you're going through as a church family. There's adultery and there's addiction. There's battles with depression and spiritual confusion. But if I had to like put one thing as the most frequent problem I deal with, it's Christians who use the F word. And the F word is feel. Pastor, I feel like God forgot about me. I feel like he can't forgive me after I did it again. I feel like like he doesn't have a plan for me after all this pain that I've been through. I feel, I feel, I feel. Why can't we always trust our feelings? Because our hearts are not exactly like God. Everything we thought, everything we felt would be good if we still had the likeness of God. But Moses is saying, we lost it. The prophet Jeremiah in chapter 17 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? 
King Solomon, the wisest man ever said in Proverbs five, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And those passages that we need to look for God and his truth outside of ourselves and not within our own feelings are based entirely on this. And so I want to encourage you to replace faith in this book with the feelings of your heart. If you're feeling distant from God, if you don't have hope and joy and confidence in the promises of God, don't use the F word in the pastor's office or even in your own home. Instead, turn in faith to what can always be trusted and what's always true. Jesus once prayed, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Truth that we need because we were once entirely good, but no longer. It's a happy message for a Sunday night, isn't it? <laughs> it's pretty depressing actually to believe that, isn't it? My heart is deceitful more than used car salesmen or, or televangelists or corrupt politicians. It's my heart. That's the biggest liar in the world. Hey, rejoice always. <laughs> it seems like a, a pretty depressing thing to actually embrace. And that's why I want you to reason with a second guy today. The Apostle Paul. You heard of Paul before? He's the guy who wrote half the New Testament. Um, did you know that Paul once thought he was a really good person and then he became a Christian and started to believe that he was a bad person? In fact, he thought he was the worst person he had ever met. <laughs> That'd be a pretty depressing bio to put on your Instagram account, right? The worst sinner on earth. <laughs> but here's the curious thing about Paul. Despite believing that his heart was messed up, that something was wrong within him, that he was the worst sinner out of all the headlines. Do you know what kind of man Paul was? A joyful, peaceful, content, satisfied soul. The stuff that kids pick for like their life verse mostly comes from the apostle Paul. Christian t-shirt companies and spiritual coffee mugs so often quote the words of the Apostle Paul because he had so much happiness gushing out of his heart. He said things like, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. I'm praying that you could have a peace that goes beyond understanding. That's Paul. I've learned the secret of being content. That's Paul. I can do anything through God who gives me strength. That's Paul. <laughs> Which begs the question, how can a guy who looks in the mirror and says, I'm the worst person on the planet, my heart is so messed up, have that much joy and peace, more than most Christians have today? Well, let me show you. Here's what Paul said about human nature in the book of Romans. He said, the mind governed by the flesh, like the way we're born, is hostile to God. Like, it's not just neutral. It's hostile. Our, our hearts don't think what God thinks, believe what God believes. He says you're saved entirely as a gift and, and our hearts push back. You know, what God says by nature, we don't agree with. And it got even worse in the book of Ephesians. Paul added, we were by nature, not our choices, not our nurture, by nature, deserving of wrath. Like every person who comes into the world, they deserve God's righteous anger and his judgment. It wasn't just for those people in first Timothy chapter one. Paul's talking about sinners and he says, of whom I am the worst. I mean, Paul was, Paul was brutal when it came to human nature and the human heart. 
So where does joy come from? Let me show you. In the book of Romans, Paul says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. <laughs> he says, yeah, it was that bad, but Jesus is so good. Like in, instead of waiting until we fixed our karma or balanced our scales, right when we were still sinners, Jesus Christ did the unthinkable and he died to bless bad people. And his death and resurrection from the dead turned sinners into saints. He died for us when we didn't deserve it. In Ephesians 2, Paul admitted we deserved God's wrath, but look at what he did. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Yeah, that we were spiritually dead. We, we couldn't fix our own problem. But get this. God has great love. And God is rich in mercy. And God takes people who are dead and distant and undeserving and he gives them life by the Holy Spirit. Even if you're the worst. <laughs> like in 1 Timothy 1, here's a trustworthy saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. <laughs> Jesus isn't waiting until you're like an average human being or, you know, pretty good person until he accepts you. At the bottom, like, like right now, if you stumbled into church today and you can still remember the words you spoke in the last 24 hours, he, he's not waiting for you to fix it. Jesus dies and he gives grace and mercy to people who simply don't deserve it. Even the worst sinners, even Paul, even us. <laughs> so ask Paul the question, we good? And here's what he says. No, <laughs> no, not by nature, not by ourselves, but in Jesus, yes. In Jesus, the impossible becomes possible. And it gives so much peace and joy and satisfaction. And that's why I love these cards. Uh, some of you know that a few years ago, I did some research in the Bible that, that really changed my faith in some profound ways. Uh, I read through the entire New Testament and I tried to figure out what names God calls Christians. Does he call them bad people? Does he call them sinners? Does he call them weak does he call them holy and good and righteous and pure? And, and I found examples of both. But this past week, I decided to conduct the same experiment with the Apostle Paul. Uh, I narrowed it down to his 13 letters that he wrote in the New Testament. And I tracked all the good words that Paul would say about Christians and then all the bad words. And I found in the end 334 different examples. I have 334 note cards here. Um, Given what Paul thought about human nature and even the heart of Christians, how do you think it broke down? How many names were bad and how many were good? I'll show you. Bad? Good. Sinner? In Jesus, so much more. 334 total names, only 31 were bad. Which leaves 303 that were good, a 10 to 1 ratio. The Apostle Paul, who was so honest about the sinfulness of our hearts, our continual need for grace and mercy from God, he gushed when he thought of the effect that Jesus has on our hearts. 
We sometimes sing in church, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. And whatever would, would keep us down, spiritually depressed, Jesus has overcome it because his grace is greater. Oh, and, and I really need you to believe this because here's what these two stacks are going to do for your heart. This one will keep you humble and this one will keep you happy. There's two big ditches in the spiritual world. What happens to a lot of people, especially a lot of religious people, is they think too much of themselves. They think, I'm one of the good people and those are the bad people. Like, okay, I'm not perfect, but the real problem is this. And I got to tell you, functionally in a relationship, in a state, in a country, in a church, things blow up when people believe that. If I'm counseling a couple and she says, he's the problem, he's the sinner, and he says, no, she's the problem. Here's what she does, pastor. Like pride is the ugly mother that births a hundred little hellions. It, it makes people impatient and they lack compassion and they're not forgiving. If I think it's, it's those people, that country, that culture, that race, that gender, everything explodes. But this keeps me humble. It, it says I'm a problem. Like I, I get why my wife struggles because I struggle. I get why those people go back to the same sins because I do the same thing. I, I get why people in my church aren't perfect yet because I'm so far from perfect. When you actually believe this, it will keep you so humble and your relationships can survive. You put that ugly mother of pride to death so something new and beautiful can be reborn. Unity and humility and peace. And if you believe this one, It'll keep you happy. <laughs> when you get to the end of the day and it hasn't worked out spiritually like you wanted, if you said some things you regret, if you're very aware that you're a sinner, but if you remember this, it can make you happy. I mean, how could God not love you in light of this? How could God not accept you after 300 words just through Paul that God spoke? How could God not have a plan for you or, or before you? How could God not love you? How could he not be crazy about you so that his face is shining upon you and being gracious to you in light of the 303 things just the Apostle Paul said? And the answer is, they can't. It, it has to be true. And God wanted it to be a 10 to 1 ratio so that you would know in the depth of your heart that God's love for you is not conditional on your behavior or your work or your merits or how much you deserve it. It's all based on Jesus and he gives it freely. About 90 minutes ago, uh, a guy came to our first service. Uh, he was a guest who came for the first time and he, he breaks down crying in front of me in the lobby. He, he says, man, you, you ever do stuff and, and like you know better and you just wonder what God thinks? I said, yep. I know exactly what that's like. But that's not all I know. <laughs> I know there's a Jesus who went to the cross so that before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is set free or justified, holy and perfect in the sight of God. <laughs> so I pray that you believe what Paul's teaching, that we are not good by nature and that keeps us humble. But because of Jesus, we are perfect in the eyes of God. And that keeps us happy.
Which brings us to our third witness. <laughs> Moses said, we were good and then we weren't. And Paul said, yeah, we're not good, but because of Jesus, we are. But what did Jesus himself say? <laughs> uh, Jesus, believe it or not, agreed with Moses and Paul. <laughs> if you would make the same stacks for Jesus, I think they'd be like this, but they'd be close. Jesus knew that what he would do on the cross for our sins was greater than any sin we'd ever commit. But he was also honest about the human heart. He said the word of God is truth and not our own hearts. He says flesh gives birth to flesh. We're born in sin. We need to be born again. He, he once told a bunch of parents, you know how to give good gifts to your children even though you're evil. Yeah, Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 7. You should look it up. But Jesus also knew that something great was coming. That not only would his death and resurrection forgive our sins and make our hearts good with God, but one day very soon when he would return, everything would be made new. Look at the very end of the Bible in Revelation 21. He who is seated on the throne, Jesus said, I'm making everything new. One day when light fills the sky, when Jesus and all of his angel army appears, when the judgment day comes, he will make everything new, including you. <laughs> There's like a thousand reasons I have for being so excited for the return of Jesus. Like to never have any more aches and pains, to have a body that's transformed, no more hospital visits, walkers, or, or medications. I cannot wait for the glory of being released from the slavery of this broken body. But, but you know what I think might be even better? To have a heart that's entirely good. When Jesus comes back and there are no more temptations out there and there's no more temptation in here, that what you and I as Jesus people will feel will perfectly fit the heart of God. That we'll never be drawn to things that are hurtful for us like we so often are in this life. For all e eternity, like we'll never have to apologize. We'll never feel regret. We'll never have to hide. We'll never be embarrassed. We will never feel ashamed. Instead, we'll stand in the presence of God himself before his throne. And if we dare to ask the question, we good? The look on our father's face will answer the question and say it all. So I love Jesus' answer to this. Our last fill in the blank. We good, Jesus? He said soon, entirely yes. The day is coming where we will sin no more. So if Moses and, and Paul and Jesus would join us in church and we'd ask them that controversial question, we good? Here's what they'd say. Yes, then no, now, kind of, soon, entirely. A good God made our hearts good. Sin turned our hearts bad. Jesus gave us new forgiven hearts and one day our hearts will be cleansed from sinfulness forever. And so we say, Alleluia, thank you, Jesus. And come quickly. Back in 2009, uh, pop singer Pink released another hit song. Uh, you probably heard it on the radio. It was called Don't Let Me Get Me. And the lyrics of that song were fascinating. She said this, Every day I fight a war against the mirror. I can't take the person staring back at me. I'm a hazard to myself. Don't let me get me. 
I'm my own worst enemy. And she was right. Our biggest struggle is not with anyone out there, but it's with the person we see in the mirror. But there's something I hope you believe that maybe Pink didn't know. That you don't have to spend your days and your nights staring at the person in the mirror. Instead, you can stare at the person who hung on a cross. Instead of seeing the person that struggles with the will of God, you can see the one who kept it. And underneath the outstretched arms of Jesus, you will know that God has this amazing way of making bad people good and turning sinners into saints. So brothers and sisters, fix your eyes on Jesus, the good savior who makes you good with God. Let's pray. Dear Father, I pray that we could be a humble people. Uh, When we walk out of here today, pride will destroy us and humility will lift us up. As a church, as families, as friends, in our workplaces, things would be so much better if we could imitate Paul and believe that the biggest problem that needs to be fixed is us. And so we pray for that kind of self-awareness and that kind of spiritual humility. But God, I also pray for happiness. I pray that while you would open our eyes to our sin, you'd open them even more to the salvation that Jesus won by his blood. Help us to realize that what he did is for us and that it's absolutely true. Help us to be so overjoyed that you are a God who is gracious to us. You're not on the fence about us. You've completely forgiven us. And that's why your face lights up when you think about us as your children. As we'll hear at the end of the service, God, your face shines upon us and you're gracious to us. You look with favor upon us and that gives us peace. Help us to never question or doubt or wonder if you're with us, if you're for us, if you have great plans for us, or if you delight in us. Because of Jesus, that's absolutely true. And one day soon, we'll see the look on your face. Until that day, keep us humble, keep us happy, and keep us close to you. We pray this all, Jesus, in your powerful name. And all God's people said, Amen.